Every couple of decades, a new generation comes into focus. Millennials have passed the torch to Gen Z as the latest generation to come of age. And one day, Gen Z will pass it on to tykes like Phil Pomford's three-month-old. What generation is that? What's the next one? I'm not sure. Is, is there a new letter here? I'm not sure. I, I don't know where they're going to go with these Let's new ones. create it, Phil. Let's like patent that right Born now. Born in 2020, <laughs> the poor kid. Oh my goodness. Forever will hold that over him. Just imagine the stories that kid's going to hear when he gets older. But those parental yarns won't be the only legacy of a year like 2020. These disruptive historical moments combine with changes in technology to shape the values, tastes, and habits of the generation to come, including how they prefer to shop and spend their money. Phil Pomford, who we heard from earlier, is the general manager of global e-commerce at FIS WorldPay. He says the rise of the smartphone and social media have made Gen Z digital natives who want new, frictionless ways to pay. A generation that is very, very focused on technology, very, very focused on speed, very focused on instant gratification around products and things that they're looking at. This is Financial Futures, the podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation. This season, we're taking a closer look at each of the five generations alive today and how they like to shop and spend their money. Armed with survey data from 15,000 consumers in 15 countries, experts from FIS tell us how the way we pay is changing across generations and around the world. How do age, culture, and technology interact to make the generations unique? And which global trends unite us all? First up, Gen Z. We'll hear more from Phil Pomford about why social media is the new shopping mall for the youngest generation, why they like to buy now and pay later, and why trust and personalization are so important for connecting with Gen Z. Can you just talk a little bit about who are Gen Z? So Gen Z are the younger of the generation groupings that we've talked about. So typically born from 1996 onwards, they have lived in a digital era the entire time. They've grown up with the internet as the absolute norm. They've also grown up with mobile phones becoming the absolute norm as well for them. Um, so a generation that is uh, very, very focused on technology, very, very focused on speed, very focused on instant gratification around products and things that they're looking at, and also a generation who have spent a significant amount of time as social commerce and as uh, e-commerce has really grown up and, and social media as well. So what characterizes how they shop and pay? And we're going to get in depth more throughout the program, but just overall, what would you say? Yeah, it, it, it's primarily online. They do use physical uh, physical stores, retail stores, but it's typically for an experience to see the product in real life. They will then spend typically online using digital payments. Um, we talk about things like e-wallets or contactless payments. These are the, this is a generation who really are looking for convenience and looking for an extremely frictionless way of making payments. And what about um, the emerging global trends across all cultures for Generation Z, would you say they're the same? 
They're similar. I think what we're seeing certainly is, is the drive to digital and, and, and digital payments is uniform across the world. I, I think in terms of things like buy now, pay later, which I know we'll talk about a little bit more later on, there are differing sort of speeds in differing countries around the world. You know, Australia and the likes of Sweden and, and parts of Europe are really sort of leading the surge in, in that form of payment. But we're certainly seeing that also start to catch up in other places as well. And would you say that the places maybe where they don't are not as comfortable with digital forms, it's maybe because it's not fully developed yet? There is part development. There's also as well that there's still an element of trust. And I think that piece should never be missed as well. There is people want to feel comfortable and feel that they're buying from a trustworthy place, especially when inserting things like credit card numbers into devices. I think there's always a level of trust that people want to ensure that they are going to receive the goods and the money is, you know, is going to go to the right place. And worried about security issues as well, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously when you're in a physical store, you can go in, you buy, you hand your money over and, and you walk away with the goods. When you are buying through social commerce or through, through a social platform or, an, or a website, there is still that level of concern. And whilst, you know, the payment industry, there, there's been lots of changes with, with things like biometrics, which give people a real comfort level around being able to make a payment, whether that's using your face or using your thumbprint, that obviously gives a layer of security. But people still want to ensure that they feel that they're buying from the site that they're purported to be buying from. So let's let's move into a little bit about social commerce. How does Gen Z use social commerce? I mean, it's really a, a pretty new concept. It's broad across all different generations, but we're seeing certainly over 50% of most of the groups, so Gen Z, Gen Y, X, etc., have purchased something to do social commerce. But it's certainly more skewed towards the younger generations who are, are more frequently engaged. And I, and I think there's a reason that people can can use their social platforms. They can they can follow the brands that they like. They can see the influencers as well. Also, you get engaged more around things like reviews, which also restarts to create a level of trust. Your friends may also purchase through that. So there's links through your social network to see the, how people are, what where they're shopping and what they're buying. And I think you're seeing an evolution in terms of the marketing aspect for some of these brands in how they target their consumers. And I think if they target them extremely well based on their likes and the brands that they're following today, there's a greater degree of success for those brands to be able to engage with, uh, with their consumers. And how much do you think Gen Z or even other generations are actually using those platforms on social commerce to actually click and do the buying? Or is it more just a, a research aspect and an impression aspect of getting that the brand impression and following the influencers and research, basically? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a bit of, of the latter. But I think to your question around the payment piece, you know, our research has found anywhere between sort of 51 and 67% of all of the generations, whether it's Gen Z, Y or X, have purchased something through social. So it's certainly starting to take place. Um, it's more frequent, as I mentioned, that the younger generation, but certainly we're seeing that engagement across all of those sort of three, let's say the younger cohorts of the different generations. So what are the benefits of social commerce? I think it's around that brand, the loyalty, the engagement, feeling that you're part of it, seeing, I guess, because of the pandemic, we've not necessarily been able to be in shops physically and actually try some of these products. But through social commerce and, and you, through the platform, those brands can come into our own home. You know, we can see, for example, if someone's purchased a, a particular 
item of clothing that you like and then you see that in action and you think actually that's that's what i need and then you see your friends have been on there as well you see the reviews you see maybe an influencer it just builds up that loyalty and i think that's what the brands really want to do is engage with their consumers and i think the platforms are allowing them a fantastic opportunity to be able to do that and have you seen a rise in the use of buying on social commerce just with the covid and pandemic situation the pandemic has probably well, has certainly accelerated what we saw uh, within WorldPay, which was a real trend towards e-commerce, mobile commerce. That was taking place for the last couple of years, certainly, uh, maybe even longer. But what the pandemic has done is has simply accelerated that, where people can't go out to physically shop. The only option really at the moment has been to use either websites or social commerce because people are at home. So all of a sudden they can get out of their living room, they can use their devices to be able to see the brands that they want out there. And I think a number of brands have done a great job in terms of that engagement throughout this period. And, and you know, we have certainly seen a great increase in online spend throughout this period. And it also seems that it's proven to boost the average order value or repeat customers with social commerce. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, I, I think that repeat thing is absolutely right. And it, and it goes back to the trust. You know, once you have purchased through a particular brand and you're engaged with that brand, and don't forget, the brand also needs to make it simple for you to shop. And, and we often talk around frictionless payments. And that to us means that you're not as a consumer when you click buy, you go to a different site. It doesn't redirect you. The payment needs to happen within the platform that you're there. It needs to be almost hidden. You know, your payment details sometimes are stored with some of these brands. And again, you use biometrics to check out and, and the simplicity of that transaction and how smooth and friction it is, is another reason that's driving repeat purchases and engagement with that brand. And just again, that the loyalty and the trust grows when you're in that sort of transaction. So you've talked about making it uh, frictionless, frictionless payment easy to do. And we're seeing that Gen Z is using social commerce more than any other generation, although others are, but there's still some sticking points. So what are those sticking points and what do you think needs to happen to drive higher adoption? I think embedding the payments in the journey is absolutely critical. I think there's also as well, at WorldPay, you know, we obviously, we cover the globe in terms of payment methods and payment options. And we speak to a number of our merchants and brands or, and, and what may work in the US, for example, won't work in Singapore to use our, you know, the fact that we're both in these two countries today. Now, I have a different expectation around what currency that I see versus what you see. I have a different expectation potentially in language that I see versus what you see. Also as well, payment methods are different in each country. And whilst we're seeing a proliferation and a real growth in the likes of the digital wallets, there are still huge amounts of local payment methods that exist. And you know, in Asia Pacific, where I'm based, you know, there's so many countries and so many different types of payment methods that if you want to engage a consumer in Indonesia, for example, it's very different to how you engage me based in Singapore. And I think where brands need to be more smart in how they target those is, again, languages, currencies, payment methods, and making that extremely simple and frictionless. And that's the way that you'll see an even further improvement in this space. So a lot of very specific targeted research. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's not treating all of your consumers as the same. Another thing about the Gen Z piece is around personalization. You know, people really expect, you know, you've gone from mass production and sort of, you know, that one size fits all to very, very individual, tailored, personalized, bespoke um, shopping. And social commerce allows you that, right? Through targeting, it's that ability to be able to know 
who I am and how different I am to the consumer next door. And the authentic engagement, that seems to be another piece as well. Absolutely. I mean, only give me things really that I'm going to be really interested in. Otherwise, you might lose me on the journey. I don't know about you, but so many of the targeted ads I see on social media are from companies I've never heard of. That's one reason why Phil says trust is such a key ingredient to making social commerce work. Clearly, it's making sure that, again, from a security perspective, people are allowed to use things like biometrics. That that really helps. But I think as brands start to talk about engaging with the consumers and creating trustworthiness there, things like, you know, free returns, that's become obviously extremely common. And an almost an, an expectation now for a number of different generations is that we're spending a lot more online. We're not there from the physical store. There's a strong chance that we will return some of the products. And I think offering a free return is something that consumers are really, really keen on. It keeps them feeling that they're trusted, that, that they trust with the brand as well. Also, exclusive access to things like loyalty. You know, we talk a lot about loyalty and, you know, the older generations grew up with things like airline loyalty programs, and that's extremely powerful to people still in that generation. But younger generations are looking for different types of loyalty and you know, they're looking for loyalty programs that potentially includes more than one retailer. So I can earn points at retailer A and I can go next door to retailer B and also earn the same points as part of that same program. They see that as highly valuable, especially in the younger generations. They also see things like non-expiring points as highly valuable. That's one of the, the, the absolute number one. So what part does social commerce play in an omnichannel journey? One of the things that we've, we've, we've seen from our research is that over 50% of global shoppers are now likely to buy on social. So social has become a key channel. So therefore, when looking at how, a, how you as a brand or a retailer you know, engage with consumers, you have to ensure that you have a social channel. That's clear. You need to make sure that it's embedded within all of your sort of the, the channel conversations you're having, whether that's sort of through the physical store, if you are still a physical retailer, or linked into your website as well. Because... What we found also from the research is almost three quarters, 73% of consumers will use more than one channel during the shopping journey. So they may look for a particular price through one area. They may buy in a different channel. We probably see that ourselves where we're looking on social media. Then we go and check on the website. Then we go to the shop on the weekend and we're comparing the entire way. And I think you have to ensure that they're all linked extremely well together and you know, mobile plays a really, really you know strong experience and, and in that journey. So again, even simple things around ensuring that your web page is mobile optimized, it sounds almost like a, a, an obvious, obvious point. But there are many, many sites out there today where you know you're moving your phone around different directions and you're losing different parts of the page because it's just not rendering for what you need it for on your mobile device. So that's absolutely critical. So. The whole experience, including social, needs to be thought about and how you want to engage, how you're going to take them through the journey and where the payment ultimately is going to be made. So what are other, so it sounds like the phone is a big way for merchants to make that social website experience pretty seamless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that younger generation piece, just the fact that the mobile phone appears to be part of the human body now and attached to the hand. Um, And it's interesting, you know, we, there's maybe even a step beyond that. Part of this research was a little bit of a fun question in our gen pay research was around, would you be interested in having a payment chip inserted into your finger to make payments? And whilst 
in many countries like the US or Australia, they were around about 15 to 17% of people who said we'd be interested. In China, Sweden's almost, done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in, in, in China, it was almost 49% of people who are really interested to do this. And, and again, it's just people thinking, well, I just want to make my life a little bit more simple. And even though in, I'm not saying inserting a chip into your finger isn't easy, it's clearly an invasive, um, invasive um, procedure. A little bit but, of surgery, you know. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but, but, but then you can check out very quickly with your finger and you don't need to carry a wallet and your pockets are free. But no, that's it's just interesting how, how these ideas become ideas and suddenly become, you know, in five, 10 years time, some of these may become mainstream. As we're talking about social commerce too, I've noticed a list of some countries that have had really high adoption of it, like Argentina, and then others that have not, like Japan and Canada and China, and then most of the rest fall somewhere in between. Is that cultural or is that technology? It's, it's interesting. I, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think there's probably more of a cultural piece to it. So, you know, trust, as we've talked about, is, is a key element, people understanding. You know, you, you mentioned Japan, for example, and that absolutely at the moment is a country who still rely on the physical going into a shop and being able to sort of touch and feel and, and, and meet the product, so to speak. Even with all the technological advancement they have. Absolutely. Yeah, there's still, I mean, Japan is still also a country from a payments perspective, which you may not, may or may not know this, but there is a, there's a, a payment method in Japan called Kombini. And Kombini is where you are online and you pick a particular good that you'd like to buy and you hit buy and you, and you choose Kombini. And you print out and you go and pay in the local convenience store with cash for that. And that is an incredibly high percentage of the sales that take place in Japan. And we, we have also have airlines who sell tickets in the same manner. And so really, you know, to, <laughs> wow. we, we've had to convince international airlines that this is absolutely what is done in Japan. And, you know, it, it, it comes you know with some shaken heads at the start, but ultimately they've they've implemented this and it's been successful. And it's it's back to an earlier point around you can't treat all consumers globally as one single audience. You do need to understand the different nuances in each market, and those nuances are you know are extremely stark when I, when I when you give that example. But that also explains why some of this digital commerce is a little bit slower in some places and higher in others. It's no big surprise that the youngest generation is embracing a brand new way to shop. But Gen Z is also helping reinvent a rather old idea in retail. Buy now, pay later. While it seems to be a part of the Gen Z experience, you know, I kind of experienced it as a Gen Xer as layaway. <laughs> so I don't know if it's really revisiting, you know, something that we've already done. It's just been recycled and remarketed. It's, it's a really interesting point. I lived in Australia for a number of years and it was called layby in Australia. And absolutely, you saw something you wanted and you said, yep, yeah, I'll take that. And they put it away. And then each week you made a payment towards it. And at the end of it, you received the good. And you were delighted. It's completely flipped it on the head, though. Buy now, pay later. It's it's a complete reversal where you actually get the goods up front, and you then make payments over three, four installments, depending on the the particular provider. And very, you can buy very small products with this. I was reading something like Sephora will let you buy a lip gloss with Klarna. There's the particular provider in Australia who has come out, and their their, their marketing was around the fact that you can installment your cups of coffee every day you can installment everything you do in your life each day so 
It's interesting. You know, our research says that the majority of the purchases is probably below $250. That's where we see the sweet spot. So why, how is it different from using a credit card? You know, other than, I mean, is there still interest? Do you need to do a credit check to use it? No. So, so each of them have different setup methods, let's say. They're predominantly they're through debit cards. There are still credit cards in there as well. But it's interesting because we've talked for years around the generation after the global financial crisis being extremely debt averse. However, what we're seeing now is that these tools are actually allowing people to be budget conscious. They're saying, okay, well, there's a purchase I want to make, but I can split it over three or four different payments, depending on the method. I can therefore start to budget my income based on my spend. So I think it's being used as a budgetary tool. Um, some, you know, some do credit checks, some don't. It, it, it's hard to sort of say there's a, there's a consistency across them all, to be honest with you, there are slightly different. But I think the reason why there's been such an adoption at that younger age, and again, it, it's, it's part of the topic of this conversation, is just around how they're delivered. It's a frictionless experience within a mobile device. And, you know, it's so simple for the shopper. It's extremely simple for the merchant as well to be able to offer this payment method because it goes through as a, as a standard credit card payment, let's call it upfront. But for the consumer, the other piece is it's the instant gratification. So we, we talked about the old days where when you and I may have put money down and you know, brought the, the item home at the end of X number of weeks. This generation wants instant gratification. And so they can take the good from the shop that day. So it removes the friction from the purchase and it creates a sense of loyalty between the consumer and the brand or the, the retailer because they've got the product in their hand straight away. So I think it's ticked a number of different boxes. And the fact that the success of a number of these platforms around the world, and you've talked about Klarna in Europe, for example, in, in Scandinavia, we're seeing almost 30% of Swedes have used this type of product. In Australia, it's around 20%, the likes of Afterpay. And Afterpay is, you know, is becoming a global success now. And also in other markets as well, we're seeing it in Europe growing, UK, France and the Netherlands. So it's really starting to take hold. Interestingly, here in Asia, it's also starting to in some of the countries. And there was a thought at first that there was a cultural element that people wouldn't like to take these in Asia. However, again, we're seeing a great success for these particular products and, and a demand for them at that younger generation. So tell us a little bit about Afterpay. You just mentioned that. Um, what are they doing differently? And how has that led them to emerge as a market leader? Afterpay have been a, a tremendous success because time and place, and again, in Australia, labor was an extremely common feature that existed. So there was, there was already a market for it. However, I think the product that they've developed, how they've gone to market, how they've worked with brands, how they've engaged in social platforms, how they have this, you know, like a loyalty program built around them as well has really created, and they've been extremely obvious in their targeting at the younger generations. Influencers have been involved, understanding what the requirements of that generation were. Instant gratification, you know, mobile delivered, extremely seamless. I think the fact that they've been able to do that and make it so convenient has been the, really the, the cornerstone of their success. Is there any risk to the merchant? Uh, not from the merchant's perspective, no. I mean, it's probably more upside for the for the merchant. They're getting that engagement from a consumer who can budget for their spend, and that then probably drives a more repeat purchase back to that that store as well. So there's there's a lot of positives, I think, for the merchant, and they're working very closely with some of these buy now pay later platforms to deliver marketing opportunities and specific offers as well to the community that exists. So I think. The buy now, pay later platforms are, are really helping to drive more retail spend in many of these countries. 
But there could be some risk, right, for the consumer, either interest, late fees. Yeah, so they typically market themselves as no interest, but with late payment fees. And again, each of them, and I'm speaking extremely broadly, but each of them will have different levels of, of late payment fees and, 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 and charges that come through. So I, I think you're right to say that there are concerns. And again, in a in, in number of different countries around the world, where because they've been so successful and very, very quickly, it has led regulators to start having some conversations around how their practices are because they're not treated as a credit form of payment. They are treated slightly differently. And you know, therefore, each country is having different conversations. And again, I'm speaking very broadly, but you know what, what I see is that there's engagement between regulators and the platforms and the providers trying to find a level playing ground that they can all work on because I think it benefits both sides to have some form of self-regulation in there. And that's certainly the way that when I look at Australia, that's that's the plan that they're taking down there as well. So I think everybody is there for the interest of the product working very well for the consumers, but obviously they're also just wanting to ensure that people are also protected as well. And how has COVID and market uncertainty driven further adoption of these buy now, pay later platforms? I think just off the back of the overall sort of, you know, trend towards digital payments, online shopping, mobile payments. I think they've managed to capture that wave because they, they're sitting within that sweet spot. So I think because of COVID and because of more people being at home and, and using digital payment methods and, and shopping online, they've been part of that wave. And that's why we're seeing such a huge growth story for these different platforms. I think it'll be interesting to see in the post-COVID world, whether this becomes the norm and embedded behaviors for, for people from a consumer perspective. Our belief is that whether it's contactless payments in store, use of digital wallets in store, buy now, pay later as a digital payment method, our belief is that that will continue to stay because they've become so embedded in people's lives and because they are so seamless and they are very good products to use and the consumer sees the convenience and the security side of it. We believe that these, these trends that we're seeing today during COVID will continue after COVID. So you see this uh, moving forward with social commerce, buy now, pay later. What about what brands and merchants need to do to reach Gen Z now and moving forward? I think it's a, it's a really interesting question because you have to be a digitally led business now. There's no doubt about it. You have to be online. You have to be on mobile. You have to be on social and you have to knit that experience together to ensure that you're achieving that target. You therefore also then need to ensure that you're offering all of the right ways to, to create trust. And you know we've talked a little bit around sort of offering free returns, for example, but also trust and security in the payment methods. You need to ensure that they are localized for the consumer that you're trying to attract. I mentioned a little bit earlier as well as ensuring that you don't treat all consumers the same. Someone in Indonesia is extremely different to somebody in the UK, for example, and how you approach that person, how you target that person needs to be extremely personalized so that they feel comfortable and that they're going to engage with your brand. That is across all generations, but particularly for Gen Z, they want to ensure that all of this feels personalized for them and it feels seamless to them. Phil Pomford is General Manager of Global E-Commerce at FIS WorldPay. That's it for today's episode of Financial Futures. We'll continue our look at how the generations pay next time with those other young upstarts we hear so much about, millennials. See you then. <laughs>